Hebrews chapter 4, beginning now at verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father in heaven, we pray with such a a profound passage from your word that you would open our dead hearts to receive your living and powerful word. We pray that you do that right now among us in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to remind you again of the general theme of this letter that was written to the Hebrew Christians of the first century. These Christians from a Jewish background, for several different reasons, they felt like giving up. They felt like pulling back from an on-fire relationship with Jesus Christ, with a wholehearted pursuit of following after Jesus. And there are a lot of different reasons why they felt this way, and we'll talk about them as they come up through the text. But the bottom line is this, is that they were feeling pressure, both internally and externally, to either pull back from Jesus or to turn their backs on him altogether. And the writer of the Hebrews, in many different ways and by many persuasive arguments, he looks them and he looks us, I would say, as well square in the eye and he says you can't give up you can't pull back there's so many reasons for you to press on in your relationship with jesus christ and to remain firmly anchored in who he is and what he's done for you in jesus now recently in the last couple messages through hebrews chapters three and four we've been seeing the importance of this idea of the rest that god has for us And there's a part of me right now that would love to go like in a summation of the last couple messages. But I'm not going to do that. You can access that very easily on the Internet or other sources. You could just see what the last few messages were made up of or read the text yourself very carefully. And you'll see the importance, the urgency of entering into that rest. Now he's going to apply that and just give one more statement about that. Now in verse 11, look closely with me. Verse 11, where he says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. The whole picture he's been painting using passages from the book of Genesis, using passages from the book of uh, Joshua, using passages from the Psalms is to paint this picture that God has a rest available for his people, a a place of peace, a a a place of understanding that our works to justify ourselves are finished. His, His place of rest that God has for believers We should be diligent to enter into it. And I'll just let the statement stand as it itself. Just take it to heart. 
Let us therefore, again, again, he's summarizing arguments from before. Let us therefore be diligent to enter into that rest. God has this rest for us as believers, and he's apportioned it to us. He's given it to us, but we're not going to fall into it all by accident. Instead, we need to be diligent to embrace it by faith, to walk in it, and to live what God has for us. And the price is very high for us if we don't, as he says at the end of the verse, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Israel and their failure in the wilderness is a negative example to us. And it makes us say, we don't want to end up in the same place. No, by trusting in God, by putting our faith upon Jesus, we want to press into this land of rest. And that sort of is, that's the summary of the last couple messages that I said I wasn't going to give you. Now, I want you to understand something. In making this case that I think has been extremely persuasive, he's quoted scripture over and over again. He's referred to Psalm this. He's referred to this passage in Genesis. He refers to ideas and concepts from the book of Joshua. He's made the whole argument. He's made the whole case for the idea that we should enter into this rest. He's made it very much based on the Hebrew scriptures, the word of God as we have it in the Old Testament. And he's trusting something that I would just kind of trust in you, that it sort of hit their hearts. I don't know about you, but for me, the last couple of weeks that we've been in these passages, really encouraging us, exhorting us to enter into God's rest, it's hit me. I hope it's hit some of you. I hope it's just made you say, wow, Lord, this is for me. And there's just something more than just some guy talking to you about these things. But actually, there's been maybe something from the Holy Spirit of God speaking to your heart in an eloquent and a powerful way. Something that indicates that God is almost, and we just use this as an analogy, of course. It's almost as if God is doing surgery on you as you hear his word. It's almost as if God is opening you up and sort of ripping you apart. They're doing some work on the heart right there. Even as you, how does this happen? He's going to explain how that happens. Look at it now, starting at verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. These two verses that so powerfully And I would say eloquently speak to us about the power and the effectiveness of God's word. Don't they seem a little bit out of place? Like he's just sort of suddenly shifted gears from talking about this rest that God has for us. Now he's speaking about the power and the effectiveness of God's word. Why? What's the link between the two? I'll tell you the link between the two. He's built his whole case on the rest that God has for us from the Hebrew scriptures, from what we call the Old Testament. And we're sort of wondering, how could you know just where was that? How could you know that this is what I needed so badly? And the writer of the Hebrews says, I'll tell you how I know. I didn't know, but the God, the word of God knew. It's the word of God that's opening you up. It's the word of God that's making this incision. It's the word of God that is, so to speak, performing surgery upon your heart. And this is what God's word does. Notice what he says right here in verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful. 
He's describing to us why it is that this scriptural case that he's been making for the rest that we should have should impact us so greatly. It's because it's the work. It's the ministry of the word of God. And friends, all I can do is tell you this. I honestly believe, I believe it with all my heart that the word of God is living and powerful. That the word of God, when we give our attention to it, it will expose the weaknesses in our life. It will instruct us and encourage us in just the ways that we needed to be instructed and encouraged. It has a precision. It has a power. It has a living dynamic to it. That makes this so much more than us blowing the dust off a 2,000-year-old book and sort of studying it together. This is what I understand with all my heart, and I hope you understand. That what we do together here is more than just an academic exercise. Sometimes I've heard people say, they say, wow, going to church is like going to a Bible class. And I think that's great. I mean, if somebody says that to me, I take it as a compliment. I don't take it as an insult. I I hope that means that there's some substance, that there's some sort of, you know, meat to what we're going through. And that's fine. But please understand this. When it's working right, and it doesn't always work right, but when it's working right, when the word of God goes forth, it is so much more than just an academic or an intellectual exercise. It's not just as if as I was teaching Shakespeare up here, which would be, I hope, a stimulating academic or, or intellectual exercise if I knew much of anything about Shakespeare, which I really don't, but just a little bit. But you see what I'm saying is that this isn't just great literature the way that Shakespeare is great literature. Ladies and gentlemen, there is something living. There is something powerful. There is something dynamic about the work of the word of God. What I like to call sometimes the ministry or the service of the word. That there's actually something that happens within a person spiritually when they put themselves under the teaching of the word of God, when they put themselves under it in faith. Now, I love and there's sort of a study that I love to do. It's sort of a tangential study to what I'm talking about this morning, where I go by and I'll list, I don't know, 20 or 22 things that the Bible says that it does spiritually in the life of those who hear it. If you're interested, you could go and look at the notes on the Internet and kind of details all that. But just to point out this. Is that there's things that God does in the heart and the mind of somebody who listens to the word of God in faith that makes them different. One thing it says, and I'll just mention one thing. It has a cleansing effect. If you'll receive the word of God in faith, you walk out of here more spiritually clean than you walked in. I don't know how dirty you were when you walked in. But you'll walk out of here more clean. Because the word of God has a cleansing effect on the inner person when it's received in faith. Isn't that beautiful? That goes so far beyond just something that you might learn in an academic exercise. And this is why it's so important for us to come together in an atmosphere of faith and expectancy. Not so that I'll feel better about it, but so that you'll receive what God has for you to receive through the spiritual ministry of the word. And so understanding this, we understand why the writer of the Hebrews could say, and I just imagine him saying this to the original people. That saying, I've just really diagnosed your condition, your need for this spiritual rest. You're wondering how I knew it. I didn't know it, but the word of God knew it. And that's where the power really is in this living, active, powerful word of God, which is, and I love the phrasing in verse 12, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. 
The word of God is like a sword with two edges. By the way, it is all edge. There's no side to it that's not sharp. There's no side to it that's not uh, an a, a edge that can cut us open and do some good surgery upon us. Art. And it works with us, not just with a, with a sword's might, but also with a surgeon's scalpel's precision. You see, I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work, that he's active in the hearts and the minds of those who hear by faith to do this exact kind of work. There are some times when people wonder how the preacher can seem to know so much about their life. Friends, I don't. I'm fairly clueless. But I can preach the word of God. And the word of God has just this diagnostic ability, like an x-ray or MRI, to see right through. I've had it happen. I've had it happen several times in ministry. It's, you know, it just happens fairly regularly where people come. I never forget the one time when a guy came up to me after service, absolutely persuaded, absolutely persuaded that his wife had had me follow him around through the week to know exactly what was going on in his life so that I could speak to it on Sunday morning. I never met the guy. I never knew him, but he was absolutely convinced. He was more than just a little bit irritated. Well, I'll never forget the guy who came in and. This was when I pastored another city years ago. And he came in and he had just attended our church for a brief time. He just was going to be in our town for four or five months. And during those four or five months, he had attended our church. And he was just a simple man who had a simple faith in Jesus. But he wanted to talk to me before he left town. And he made an appointment. I came in and talked to him. And this is what he said to me. And, and I pray that you'll forgive me this minor vulgarity. I'm, I'm just going to quote the man just as he said. He looked me square in the eye and he said, Pastor, your sermons scare the hell out of me. I didn't quite know whether to regard that as a compliment or not. But as he explained, I, I said, Could, tell me exactly what you mean. I understood. He meant that as a compliment. He said, you seem to know exactly where my life is at and exactly what I need to hear. He goes, it's scary to me. He said, it's like one of those paintings where the eyes seem to follow you around the room. Now, again, I am not a man of any particular insight or great wisdom or intelligence or those things. But I tell you what I have is I have an eternal word of God and a passion to teach it. And I think it's the word of God that does that amazing work. And I think we can be confident in it. Yeah, you can clap for that if you want. I think it's the power and the wonder of the word of God that does this work. And so this is what I want you to do. I want you to just to understand this and say, first of all, to be grateful for it when it's happening in your life. To sometimes you just feel like the Holy Spirit's just laying you open and doing surgery on your heart. Be grateful for that. That's a good thing. It doesn't always feel good, does it? But listen, it's a wonderful thing when the Spirit of God does that. Secondly, you should come with that anticipation of faith that God will do this and that will do it consistently in your life. And you'll see him do it time and time again. Now, he gives an illustration here in verse 12, speaking of how powerful and how accurate the word of God is, where he says this in verse 12. He says, even to the division of soul and spirit. The emphasis here is that the word of God does such a sharp and precise work that it can divide between soul and spirit and divide between joints and marrow. He uses the same phrasing there. That's how sharp, that's how precise the word of God is, is that it can make such a fine division as between soul and spirit. 
Now, the stress of this passage is not to spell out a theology of the difference between soul and spirit. Yet, you've got to admit that the writer of the Hebrews makes the point here that there must be some kind of distinction between soul and spirit because the word of God is able to make this. And, and I'm just going to speak just for a few moments on this sort of tangential issue of this difference or distinction between soul and spirit. Now, let me just say this. Um, if you're not interested at all in this, You can tune out just for the next few moments while I talk about this, but I'll let you know when it's time to come back in, okay? So let me speak to the people now who are interested in this idea of the division between soul and spirit. This is a matter of theological debate. And the theological debate goes something like this. Is man made up of three parts or of two parts? In theological circles, they call it the dichotomist or the trichotomist uh, controversy. Is man made up of body and spirit or is he made up of body, spirit, and soul? Now, you know, you can talk about it all day long. I'll just point this out. It sure seems to me like right here, the writer of the Hebrews is making the point that there is a division, that some division can be made, a distinction can be made between spirit and soul. And I think that it's an instructive thing. Now, I will admit that the issue is clouded. It's, 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 it's difficult sometimes because there are places in the Bible where it uses the term soul and spirit synonymously. So it's an imprecise term. Sometimes it uses them in the same sense of just referring to the inner person. But other times it refers to them in a way that makes a distinction. And if you were to make a distinction between the ideas of soul and spirit, I would make the distinction like this, that the soul seems to focus more on individuality regarding the inner life. Some people describe it as the mind, as the will, and as the emotions. That this is the inner life of a person that sort of defines them as an individual. And everybody has this, whether you're converted or whether you're not converted. It doesn't matter. Everybody has the mind, the will, and the emotions, this inner life. That would be the aspects of the soul. The spirit, sort of in distinction to that, would be more the supernatural contact and power in their inner life that connects with God. And this is such a fine distinction, such a difficult distinction to make that the word of God is so sharp and so powerful that it can make this distinction between the two. All right, now let me call back into this, all those people who have tuned out for a moment, because I do have an important point to make about the difference between soul and spirit. So ready? Okay, now you're with me again. This is the important part I want to make. There is a type of Christian life that can be lived largely on a soulish level. There is an inner quality of life, an inner aspect to me that can be lived apart from Jesus Christ. If I go to hear a great symphony or a great band that really inspires me, there's something in the inner man that is really stirred and maybe built up and maybe even you could use the word blessed, but not spiritually. It's just sort of uplifting in the inner sense. And there's nothing wrong with that. Good entertainment can do that. Great literature can do that. There's aspects of the inner person that can be lifted up. And that can be a wonderful thing. There can be good soulish development. Here's the problem in the church sometimes. Is we take things that are soulish and we pretend that they are spiritual. Think about it as it has terms for uh, preaching. 
I could give a message. Well, maybe I could give a message. Let's just say theoretically I could give a message. You know, full of intellectual depth and a lot of humor and great illustrations. But it has no spiritual content whatsoever. And you could walk out of here saying, wow, wasn't that a great thing? I loved hearing him speak. But you weren't spiritually built up at all. You see the difference? You can be blessed, so to speak, soulishly and not be blessed spiritually. And I think this is something very important. Now, please understand, there's nothing wrong with being blessed soulishly. That's a good thing. But we should never pretend that we're imparting spiritual ministry if really all we're doing is imparting soulish ministry. I want you to know that that's something I think about. That's something I think about in the whole thing that we do here in our church family, that we want to bless people and build them up spiritually, not only soulishly. But don't miss the point here. Look at the point he makes here in verse 13, where he says, all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, the whole idea isn't to go off in some big digression between soul and spirit, even though I did that for a short period of time. No, the real point of this here is to come back to the idea that the word of God exposes us. It sees our need. It lays us out open. It lays us out naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. There you are. You're just before God in that sense, naked and open. You know what I think of? I think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Don't you when you think about this? There they are trying to cover what they perceive to be their nakedness with fig leaves. And God saw right through it. And we do the same thing sometime in our own walk with God. You come in here with a covering, so to speak. I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. You come in here with a covering of fig leaves. God sees right through it. He sees through us. Look, I I don't want to act as if the church is filled with a bunch of phonies and hypocrites. I think oftentimes that's exaggerated among God's people. But whatever phoniness or hypocrisy is in my life or your life, I can tell you this. God's word sees right through it. And if we'll listen to God's word, it will, in the most beneficial way possible, expose it for us and lead us into the light. And so here in this beautiful, beautiful power, remembering the context here, the writer of the Hebrews trusts that he's pierced the hearts of his audience. They felt like giving up on Jesus or at least pulling back from following him with a whole heart. And in this passage, he makes it so clear. You can't give up on Jesus. You can't remain hidden from God. God's word will, so to speak, it'll hunt you out. It'll open you up. It'll expose you in the best way so that you can make these things right with God. Now, starting with verse 14, we shift almost to a second idea, to a second subject. It's almost like you can put a great big period at the end of verse 13. And now consider that starting with verse 14, we're sort of continuing on with a different but related idea. You see, now he's going to pull another reason why discouraged Christians should not give up. The latest big reason why he's given is because God has a rest that's appointed for you. So don't give up. Don't fall short of it. Now here he comes to a second reason that we're just going to begin to introduce. And as we continue on, we'll follow through. Here's the second big reason why you should not give up. Because you have a sympathetic high priest in heaven. Look at it right here in verse 14. 
Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Isn't that beautiful? Here's why you should hold fast to your following of Jesus Christ. Why you should not pull back or give up because you have a great high priest who has ascended to heaven. And that's why you should hold fast your confession of faith. I think it's a remarkable statement there, isn't it? The idea that Jesus is our high priest, it's not new to us in the book of Hebrews. He's mentioned it twice before, once in chapter 2 and once in chapter 3. But now he's going to develop this theme more extensively. And he says, seeing then, I love the first few words of verse 14, seeing then, pay attention to this, look at this. You have a high priest, number one, who's great. He's marvelous, he's amazing. But number two, He has passed through the heavens. In other words, he has ascended into heaven and now he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's in this place of exaltation. So first, he's great. Secondly, he has ascended to heaven. But thirdly, he is the son of God. And therefore, you should hold fast your confession. Now, I think this is very interesting. The writer of the Hebrews expected that this would encourage people. So I imagine myself sitting down with somebody over a cup of coffee and they're very discouraged and they're very, you know, um, they feel like giving up or pulling back in their Christian life. And I sit down with them and I look them in the eye and this is what I say. Hey, friend, don't give up. You have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. And so you shouldn't lose your confidence. And I wonder if that person on the other side of the cup of coffee from me might say, so Now, look, here's the thing. If the understanding that Jesus is your great high priest, if the understanding that Jesus is your great high priest ascended to the right hand of God, the father, if understanding that Jesus is the great high priest and he's there for you right now, if that doesn't make you feel like continuing on and staying strong, then here it is. Then you don't really understand it then you don't understand how wonderful, how amazing it is for you to have a high priest. You don't understand how great Jesus is in that function. You don't understand how glorious it is that he exercises that role right now ascended into heaven. And so starting with this, but then continuing on to the next several messages, you're going to understand it. And you're going to understand how encouraging, how rooted, how grounded it makes you in your walk with God to understand Jesus in his high priestly role. Let me give you just one example. Here it is. Verse 15, he says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let me tell you about our great high priest. We have a high priest who can sympathize with us. I love how he states it in the negative there in verse 15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. Turn that around. What does it mean? You do have a high priest who can sympathize with you in all of your struggles. Now, he's been very careful to talk to us about Jesus previously in the letter. To tell us that Jesus is God, to tell us that Jesus is man. Now he speaks to us and tells us how Jesus can sympathize with us and how Jesus can speak to our lives just as we are now. Now, I want you to know that in the ancient world, this would blow many minds to hear the writer of the Hebrews speak like this. Because among the ancient Greeks, in their thinking, 
one of the primary attributes of God was something that in the ancient Greek language they called, you'll pick up on this right away, they called it apatheia. You know, we get our English word apathetic from that. They felt that God was detached. That the great quality of God was that he didn't care. Was that he was detached from human, you know, variation. That God was detached from human suffering. And he wouldn't be God if he wasn't detached. But you see what the writer of Hebrews is telling us? He's saying, no, let me tell you about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not detached. He is connected to you. He sympathizes with you. He suffers along with you in the midst of your suffering. That there's a God in heaven, the second person of the Trinity, and he added humanity to his deity and he lived among us. And because he lived among us, because he shared our life, he knows what we're going through. He knows and can sympathize with your pain, with your joy, with your excitement. He can connect with your life in a way that is almost beyond your ability to conceive. He can even connect with your temptations. Did you see that there in verse 15? But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted to the greatest depths of all. Now, there are some people say, well, he couldn't have been tempted like I'm tempted because I'm so wicked and those temptations come from my own wicked nature. And Jesus didn't have a wicked nature. How could he be tempted the way I was? Well, it's true. There's some variation in the aspect that Jesus was tempted. He was never tempted from the inside the way that we are. But let me tell you this. He was tempted from the outside far more severely than any of us will ever experience Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted and to be tempted so severely. Therefore, as verse 15 says, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. I think about that. I think about that with the person who's so filled with shame. The person who thinks about their life right now, either the way their life is at present or some horrific sin that they've committed in the past. I think about the poor woman or man, for that matter, who has an abortion on their conscience. And it pains them. Maybe it doesn't bother other people, but it bothers them. I think of the person who has gone after sexual desires and sexual inclinations in their life that they just know are sin doesn't matter how many other people try to tell them, no, it's great, everybody does it. They know within their hearts. I think about the person who is enslaved to an addiction. And in addition to all the other dynamics going on with that slavery to the addiction, they are so deeply ashamed that they can hardly bear it. Do you understand how wonderful it is to have Jesus come right along beside you? And say, I can sympathize with you. I can connect with you. Here I am. You can come to me. I say this with respect, but I'm going to say it strongly. You don't have to go to the Virgin Mary. You don't have to go to a saint. You you don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go even to a pastor. 
Jesus himself can sympathize with you. And whatever work that a priest or a pastor or somebody might do in praying with you, no, what they're doing is simply connecting you with the person who can help you. Jesus Christ who sympathizes with you. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this powerful? Can't you see how that can give strength to the person who just feels that they're barely hanging on and now suddenly realizing that Jesus sympathizes with me? That he doesn't sympathize with my sin. No, my sin, he says, that's wrong and you need to repent of it. But he sympathizes with my weakness. He sympathizes with my condition. He sympathizes with my misery. That gives so much strength to my grip. And then to realize that as I'm holding on to him with all my might, I feel him holding right back on to me. I say, yes, Jesus, I can hang on. Thank you for this great sympathy. Let's conclude with a look at the last verse there, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Isn't that beautiful? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. You have in heaven a savior whose arms are open wide to you. Therefore, you can come and you can come boldly. You don't have to come cringingly to Jesus. Come to him boldly. Come to him boldly. Say, listen, Jesus, I'm so ashamed. I know I've sinned. I know I'm in misery, but I can come to you boldly. Bring to him all your joys. Bring to him all your happiness. Come to him and his arms. And friends, as you think about the cross. Does it not have some significance to you? That his arms were nailed open wide. And that's how he stands today in heaven. Oh, thank you, Jesus. The nails are gone. Thank you, Jesus, that, that the scars still remain. But those scars, they remind us that his arms are open wide. You can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help. He's there to help you in your time of need. The ancient rabbis, or at least some of them, taught this. They taught that God had two thrones in heaven. One was a throne of mercy and one was a throne of judgment. And what God basically did was he switched between the two thrones. When he wanted to dispense mercy, he sat on his mercy throne. But when he had to dispense judgment, he sat on his judgment throne. Do you realize how powerful it is the writer Hebrews tells us we have a throne of grace that we come to. He's saying there's, there's just one throne up there. If you want to talk about a throne of judgment, there it is at the cross. That's where sin was judged. And it doesn't mean that God has no more judgment for a world that rejects him. Not at all. But it means that you can have your sin satisfied in the judgment placed upon it there at the cross. Remaining in heaven for us is a throne of grace. And the good news I announce to you is that a sympathetic savior stands there at that throne of grace with arms open wide. And he says, come to me. It's a very appropriate morning for us to have communion together. We're going to do that collectively in both the bread and the cup. 
So let me pray now, and I'm going to trust that the rest of the ministry that the Holy Spirit has to do among us this morning will be done through communion and our worship and our prayer here remaining. Father in heaven, we're staggered by this. We're staggered by this offer, by this opportunity, by the richness of this throne of grace that awaits us. I pray, Lord, that you would find a way to break through a heart that's maybe cynical, that's maybe hardened, that you break through that by the power of your word, by the presence of your spirit, and draw even hardened hearts towards the sympathy, towards the mercy and the grace that awaits them at your throne of grace. We receive it together this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.